Welcome to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for this first episode. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied more or less around a theme. Unique and true stories, as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music, if you will. You might laugh a little or cry a little, but we hope you think a lot and feel even more about what it means to be human. Our storytellers are people of faith. Good faith, we'd say. But on Good Faith Stories, you won't hear testimonies or sermons. No, you're going to hear stories. Real people telling you, this happened to me. This week's episode is organized around the theme of mission. A mission to find the right person. A mission to comfort, to build, to help. Sending and being sent on a mission. Our first story in this episode comes from the producer of this podcast, Cliff Vaughn. His story, Shorthand, finds him on a mission to retrieve a valuable notebook in the Rocky Mountains. The year is 2015. I'll guard this notebook with my life. That was the best pitch I could come up with for why Buzz and Shirley should let me take their notebook from their home in Castle Rock, Colorado, back with me to Nashville. I'd gone out there with my co-producer, Robert, on a production trip for our documentary on the role Christian missionaries played saving lives in 1966 Nigeria during a tribal genocide. We had tracked down a number of missionaries with stories from 1966. Some of them were living in Colorado, and we'd gone out there for interviews, for assessing what related documents and items they might have in their possession, and so forth. Buzz and Shirley met singing Christmas carols in Casablanca in 1953. They had gone on to serve as missionaries in Nigeria. They had lived supremely interesting lives. And now here they were, in their 80s, living quietly in the Rocky Mountains. Shirley was in a wheelchair, dealing with Parkinson's disease. She couldn't talk above a whisper. Buzz was a man of few words. Both were gentle and kind. And they told us before we left Nashville, as they agreed to our visit, that they were in possession of a notebook that Shirley had kept about those horrific events in 1966. Robert and I arrive at their home. Buzz has made us chocolate chip cookies. We get to know each other a bit. Then talk shifts to Nigeria. Buzz produces a few relevant items. One of them is a notebook. The notebook. Intact. 110 pages. Kept by Shirley. It's an account of a secret meeting held in October 1966 by Christian missionaries and Nigerian pastors. It's ground zero for our documentary topic. And it's in shorthand. If you've never seen shorthand, imagine a bunch of lines and squiggles and curly cues that you couldn't possibly ever hope to decipher. That's shorthand. 
It's a writing method that uses abbreviated symbols called outlines to represent language. It used to be popular among secretaries and journalists, people needing to record information accurately and quickly. Shirley herself used to teach shorthand. So when summoned to that critical meeting in 1966, she recorded who said what in shorthand. Buzz says, There were originally two notebooks that Shirley kept, but the other one has been lost to history. Now, two things were paradoxically and plainly evident. One, this artifact would be critical to our project, but two, we didn't know what it really contained. Shirley is in no shape to undertake a translation of the document, and I'd minored in French, not shorthand. It's obvious that if this notebook is going to be any earthly good, it's going to have to go back to Nashville with us, at which point we'd find a translator. I start rehearsing to myself the persuasive argument for why Buzz and Shirley should let a couple of strangers take this item, which at this point to me is one of Earth's treasures. I had no sooner gotten out, I'll guard this notebook with my life, than Buzz says, take it. If it will help with this project, take it. We've held on to it for all these years, thinking someday somebody may want it. I admit that one of the parts of my job that I love the most is being that somebody on that someday. We take the notebook back to Nashville, and I start looking for a translator. I occasionally show it to people as a novelty. That looks like Arabic, one person says to me. I wish it were Arabic. I'd have an easier time finding someone who could translate it. My early leads are dead ends. We need a reliable, credentialed professional. I finally reach Bonnie White, Professor Emerita of Education at Auburn University. I get her a good copy of the notebook, and I put Bonnie in touch with Shirley, who can answer the occasional question via buzz about peculiarities and her personal style of shorthand. Shirley dies at Christmas time, 2015, knowing that the notebook had been translated. And it's the gold mine we believed it to be. It contains crucial details about the genocide. It also turns philosophical as these missionaries and pastors grapple with the evil they've seen, even as they lament how their Christian witness hasn't prevented a genocide. The notebook ends with one missionary searching, saying, maybe the church is too... It ends. The church is too... what? Too out of touch? Too prideful? Too concerned about doctrine? Too... what? The documentary releases in September 2016, 50 years after these specific horrors. Robert, the co-producer, and I attend some screenings, work on press. Then in March 2017, Robert dies. He's been ill for a long time, and this was his last project. He'd been a seventh grader in Nigeria during the genocide, himself a missionary kid. He'd carried questions about what really happened for 50 years. Questions because no one talked about it for 50 years. Hardly anyone, except for in that secret meeting where Shirley had written everything down in shorthand. When Robert dies, I get an email from Buzz in Colorado. He sends his condolences, and then adds, almost as an afterthought, By the way, I found Shirley's second notebook. Would you like it? I say yes, he mails it, postmarked March 8, 2017. It sits, unopened still, in storage pregnant somehow with lives of those already gone.
That was Cliff Vaughn, producer of numerous feature and short documentaries. His long-form narrative podcast, Brother Molly, chronicles the life and work of theologian Molly T. Marshall. For more on that one, visit BrotherMolly.com. Our next story comes from Rabbi Jack Moline in Virginia, who embraced a rather somber but important mission by telephone many moons ago. He tells the death of Christian. A decade ago, I was grilling hamburgers in my backyard in Alexandria, Virginia, for the houseful of guests we were expecting. I was very busy and very happy to be busy. My study line rang. I called it the bat phone. My wife called it 1-800-CALL-JACK. And my children called it the funeral hotline. On the other end was a woman who identified herself as a social worker in West Virginia. She was looking for a rabbi who could come to the hospital to comfort a mother who was going to lose her 21-year-old son. Now, where she was calling from was a good two and a half hours away. So I asked the social worker how she found me. Well, she said, the rabbi who lived much closer was unavailable, so she went to the Yellow Pages, and Agudas Achim, beginning with A, is the very first listing. I had friends coming for dinner, my kids were all at home, and these people in West Virginia were not my congregants and didn't even live in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I told her I couldn't get to West Virginia, but I would be glad to talk with the mother on the phone. She said she would check with the mom and call me back. A few minutes later, she called with the mother's cell phone number. We'll call the mother Kathleen. I put on my voice of concern and called her on her cell phone. She thanked me profusely for taking the time and, of course, began to cry. There is no hope for him, she said. They told me I have to disconnect the life support. I am just so sad. What is your son's name? I asked. She replied, Christian. I paused and said, um, Kathleen, are you Jewish? No, she said. And then she continued, I just never found what I was looking for in any church I attended. All I wanted was to do God's will. So I started reading the Old Testament and I tried to live by what I read there as best I could. When this happened, I just knew I needed Christian to be in his right relationship with God before he went. And the rabbi nearer here wouldn't come. Was it an illness or an accident, I asked. Neither, she replied. My son died of a heroin overdose. Christian, it turns out, was six foot five, a big bear of a guy who rode a motorcycle and did his best to get through some community college courses. As a teenager, he'd gotten mixed up with drugs and developed a pretty hefty heroin habit. It took him a couple of tries, but he finally broke his addiction and set his life on the right path. He was really in love with his girlfriend and was hoping to marry her. And then she dumped him. Kathleen figured that Christian got weak and went back to get high out of his depression. 
but his success in getting clean and sober had reduced his body's tolerance for the drug. When he shot up with the dose that used to get him high, he overwhelmed his system. And that's how he wound up lying in a hospital bed with a flatline EEG. I quietly explained to Kathleen about the Jewish deathbed liturgy and confirmed that her cell phone had a speaker function. We set the time for the next night at 9 o'clock. Things would be quieter in the hospital. I had my lovely evening with family and guests, and the next evening, when the appointed time arrived, I explained again to the bereaved mother what I was about to read in both Hebrew and English, and recited a confessional for Christian, son of Kathleen, maybe the most unusual name I ever used liturgically. I felt pretty good about what I did from my kitchen table across a hundred miles or so. But something told me there was a little more listening to do. So I asked Kathleen to tell me more. And this is what she said. Rabbi, when Christian was a little boy of three or four, he had a favorite pair of red pajamas. One night, I had a horrible dream. There was a flood and everything was washing away. Christian was in his red pajamas and he was calling for me. I kept reaching out to him, but I couldn't get to him. Eventually, the water washed him away and he was lost. It was such a bad dream and so real that the next morning when he took off those pajamas, I burned them so that nothing like that could ever happen. Well, two nights ago, I had another dream. I was on the top floor of what looked like a hospital. Everyone was all dressed in white. They were all doctors or nurses, and they were rushing around. Over in the corner was my little Christian wearing his red pajamas. I kept trying to reach him, but I couldn't. I was very afraid. A nurse in a white coat came and took him by the hand and led him toward the swinging doors at the end of the white corridor. In my panic, I grabbed the person walking past me and said, Is Yahweh in this place? Everyone started laughing, and the woman I grabbed said to me, Don't you know, Yahweh is everywhere. And then I knew that Christian would be okay. And that's why I knew I had to speak to a rabbi. Kathleen and I cried a little together. She thanked me. I offered her my blessing. I never heard from her again. That was Rabbi Jack Moline, president of the Interfaith Alliance based in Washington, D.C., Learn more about him and his work at interfaithalliance.org. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for this episode. More Good Faith Stories after this short break. The Book of Exodus is an epic narrative of God's deliverance of the children of Israel. It's also a story for all people. In the new book, Catching Up with God by Greg Deloach, explore how God is still at work in this world from one generation to the next in a mission of liberation, healing, and redemption. Catching Up With God 
by Greg DeLoach. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org forward slash bookstore. Welcome back to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas, your host for our first episode. Today we're hearing stories about mission, true stories told by the people who live them. Stories about important tasks and assignments to places where people go and get sent. Stories about mission. Our next story comes from Cynthia Holmes in St. Louis, who lived to tell the tale, Strangers on a Roof. I was relaxing in my chosen aisle seat, just having boarded the plane, waiting for the slightly exhilarating feeling you get when the wheels leave the ground. It was a simpler time, late 1990s. Maybe you remember it in the before times, when the big decision was peanuts or pretzels, when you didn't have to worry if you could get past TSA with that extra ounce of shampoo in your carry-on, when you didn't have to strategically plan seat selection to minimize the number of other passengers' droplets that might land on you. All was well. I was heading to Fort Lauderdale. Ah, spring break. Well, it was spring and this was a break, just not that spring break. The mission, roofing a building, being constructed as a medical clinic. Final destination was Homestead, a poor area just south of Miami. Like so many other areas, it was lacking in decent health care. The clinic was a response to the destruction wreaked several years earlier by Category 5 Hurricane Andrew. Strangely, I'm a lawyer, not a builder. I must admit, there were some doubts. Our main assignment was to roof the building. Could we? Really? As far as I knew, no one else on the trip was an expert in construction. I would soon learn whether a group of mostly strangers from Missouri could get it together enough to accomplish our mission. We started the week at a church in a rundown section of Miami. We welcomed homeless people. At the church, they were allowed to shower and get clean clothes. We hoped to serve them a meal and shared worship. Then it was off to lunch at a South Beach restaurant once, or maybe still, owned by singer Gloria Estefan. We enjoyed the beach view and the meal, even though convicted at that point with the knowledge of how little we had done for those who had nothing while unable to ignore the knowledge of our own privilege. Monday, on site, at the shell of a building. Showtime. As our primary assignment was roofing, it was early to rise. We had to get on and off the roof before it got too hot. On arrival, we figured out what each of us could do best. In my case, picking up Trash left by the real builders is my strong suit. After seeing me try and fail to hammer a nail, 
My assignment became placing the talk lines for the shingles. Some of us installed shingles and the handier crew worked inside on more specialized tasks, like installing electric. Like so many of the do-gooder projects we undertake, this was full of contrasts. Before the trip, I knew only two others in our strange crew. I was from St. Louis and the rest from Kansas City. We at least had a gifted local foreman, a gentleman in his late 70s. He was knowledgeable and patient in the face of a lot of bumbling incompetence. At least that's how you describe my building construction talents. It was appropriate that we were from the show me state as we had to be shown how to do most of the work. As the two oldest, the Kansas City pastor and I felt like house parents. Others in the crew were a nonprofit exec, two middle-aged businessmen, a 20-something couple, and a young woman college student. Coming together, we contrasting individuals worked as a team. We bonded. I was forewarned that one of the guys was a rush conservative, pretty much my opposite. But as it turned out, like ebony and ivory, in this case, blue and red worked together in perfect harmony. Up on the roof, even with contrasting viewpoints, we discussed serious topics like abortion and gun control, still able to work as a team without throwing each other off the roof. We understood each other and even understood the local Hispanic worker who spoke little English. We accepted differences as we worked to provide a place where the community could gather for care. We did what we could, got the roof on, but had to leave with the building only partially completed. It had been contrasts for sure. Strangers in paradise or stranger than fiction. As it turned out, it was both. A few years later, I was able to return. When I took my husband to Homestead to see the building, there it stood, completed. We were able to walk through the operating clinic with doctors and nurses providing decent medical care for the first time for many. Strange as it was, it was then I decided it was mission accomplished. Cynthia Holmes, who has served various organizations that champion the separation of church and state. Holmes has practiced law in Missouri for over 40 years. Our last story comes from Sam Harrell in North Carolina. He takes us back with him to his teenage years on the continent of Africa in his story, The Threshold. I was 14 and about to experience the end of life as I knew it. My bags were packed a week ahead of time. I had metal trunks full of bedding, clothing with name tags sewn in, extra socks, and a tuck box with a padlock for hoarding all the edible goodies from home. 
I was about to be off to Rift Valley Academy, RVA, the legendary mission school that educated children of missionaries from all over Sub-Saharan Africa. Teddy Roosevelt laid the cornerstone of the school on a hunting safari in Kenya in 1909. Children as young as six began their education there in Kenya. It seemed the only option for many families who felt boarding school was better than trying to homeschool their children in isolated bush stations. Some of the kids, including me, struggled mightily. As my parents dropped me off, my mom was fighting tears, trying to sound cheerful and looking forward to seeing me at the first free weekend a month away. My lip was quivering and my stomach began to churn as they drove away. Blakey dorm was essentially one long hall with partitions, creating a series of 12 by 12 rooms on either side of the hall, three boys to a room. Days began well before 7.15. Make your bed. Sweep your room. Dust your desk, stoke the boiler fire for hot showers, and clean the toilet stalls. Breakfast, then class at 8, chapel at 10, tea break at 10.30, lunch at 12.30, afternoon classes, and final bell at 3.45. Then on to sports until supper at 6. Student center till 7.15, study hall in the dorm until 9, free time until 10.15, then lights out. An idle mind is the devil's workshop, goes the shaker saying. RVA tried to make sure the devil had no chance in hell. That first week, I auditioned for and I made the choir. I didn't make the soccer team and I began to suffer progressively from a debilitating case of homesickness. I tried to run away one night during study hall, but I ended up in the principal's office late that night after being found out and turned in by a well-meaning acquaintance. The principal prayed sincerely for me and counseled that God had placed me here for a reason and that I was exactly where I needed to be. The principal may have been right, but at that particular moment, wisdom in the face of trauma remained unappreciated. Conventional boarding school wisdom was not to let students go home the first several weeks to allow for proper adjustment, but I made sure my dad came and got me on that very first Saturday morning. I was lucky in that home was only an hour or so away. Many of my classmates lived countries away from their parents. I stifled tears all the way home that Saturday I locked myself in my room when I got there and declared that was the end of boarding school for me. When it came time to go back, I wrote a note to my parents. I slipped it under the door. It declared I would rather be homeschooled than go back. When I was eventually coaxed out of my room, it was only to be informed that there was really no option other than to return. I was trapped. I ran down to the forest below the house, crying all the way, ready to do anything not to go back. My dad followed, 
calling me gently. I eventually ended up in the living room with my mom and dad, all of us crying. I was inconsolable, beyond the reach of reason or logic. Finally, my dad said, well, and got up and walked to the phone. Looking back, we were about to cross a threshold. I asked my dad what he was doing. He said that if I was really unable to return to school, he would have to call the mission board and they would resign. We would go back to the States until I could finish my education. I'm not really sure what happened in the sheer emptiness of those few moments, but it felt like death, utter helplessness with no guarantee that anything would follow. The prospect of me losing home, country, and friends was overwhelming enough, but the possibility that my folks would pause their lives and calling, that caused me to catch my breath. On the other hand, back to boarding school? Seemingly from nowhere in that moment, I received from a source beyond myself or my parents a strength and willingness to move forward. There was suddenly calm. I went back to school, welcomed back by my friends without judgment. There were still a few moments of dread, but not panic. I got through those first months and never really looked back. My few years at RVA were some of the best of my life. I was never really tempted to hold any of this against my parents. I knew they loved me, and I came to understand that at the time they were doing the best they could in an era of missionary thinking that often placed calling above comfort, convenience, or convention. They likely struggled at that threshold more than I did. But the surrender that occurred in those moments and in that space of threshold was, by grace, life-giving. One could probably assign names or syndromes or conditions to what happened to me in the course of my encounter with Rift Valley Academy. In reality, liminal space exists somewhere between dying and the possibility of new life. After hearing my story once, theologian Richard Rohr said simply, Ah, your sacred wound. The thing about sacred wounds is, they can become a source of strength and healing. Seven years after my parents dropped me off at RVA, I arrived back on my own, armed with a college degree to begin two years of teaching. Funny thing, I could spot homesick kids a mile off, and they knew I could see them. That was Sam Harrell of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Sam and his wife Melody are also the founders of Africa Exchange, which promotes mutuality in relationships, resilience in communities, and the sustainability of natural environments. Learn more at africaexchange.org. You've been listening to Good Faith Stories from Good Faith Media. I'm Starlet Thomas. We at Good Faith Media know there's always more to tell. 
and everyone has a story. So what's your story? We'd love to hear it and help you share it. Contact us at goodfaithmedia.org or get in touch directly with our producer, Cliff Vaughn. Email him at cliff at goodfaithmedia.org. Make sure you subscribe to Good Faith Stories to get our next episode as soon as it drops. And check out all of our podcast offerings and more at goodfaithmedia.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.